Welcome to another episode of Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. I'm Sean Furmage. And I'm Jonah Rubin. Today, we're going to be hearing interviews with three leading anthropologists on the Black Lives Matter protests. Sean, what got you interested in hearing specifically anthropological takes on this topic? Well, like the rest of the country, anthropologists have been gripped by the Black Lives Matter movement and other mobilizations around policing and race-based violence over the past few years. As a discipline that studies state violence, social movements, the adoption of new technologies and ritual performance, a new anthropology could provide important context to a complicated issue, often simplified in mainstream accounts. Sounds great. So who'd you talk to? So first up is Jarimar Bonilla and Lawrence Ralph. Professor Bonilla is an associate professor at Rutgers University in the departments of Latino and Caribbean Studies and Anthropology. Together with Jonathan Rosa, she recently authored an article looking at the impact of social media on protests following the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. And Professor Ralph is an associate professor in the departments of anthropology and African and African-American studies at Harvard University, who works on police abuse and mass incarceration. Fabulous. Let's take a listen. So how did you become interested in Twitter and Ferguson? So I wanted to think about both both the events of Ferguson and how they were using Twitter on the ground in Ferguson and how it was enabling Ferguson to become uh, a news event, a national event in particular ways that, for example, um, transistor radios, the printing press, other technologies had had important impacts on social movements in the past. And I felt that Twitter was having that playing a, a particular role in this moment. But I also became interested in Twitter itself as a possible field site, as a possible point of entry. I've talked to a lot of people um, who were in Ferguson or participated in it in the protest and they said that they can tell the difference between people who got their news of, about Ferguson from Twitter versus those who got them from the newspaper or, or TV. Like it's a different relationship to the news. I mean partly also because everything comes with a commentary with a reflection and a kind of pushback. I mean some people just retweet but other people are tweeting their ideas about what was happening. And I recently tweeted out um, in relationship to the Baltimore protests that I felt like one could see on Twitter what Trio had talked about in terms of the double-sided nature of historicity of, of all political actors, how all political right. actors are both actors and narrators of history. So you can see people experiencing in real time the sense that they are a part of history, the sense that they are in the midst of a newsworthy event. And so they're, they're documenting with a heightened sense because they realize that, that what they're a part of is something that is going to be in the history books that people are looking to and paying attention to. So I do think that in these moments, social media becomes particularly interesting because people are hyper aware that they are creating this archive and that it is a counter archive to the way in which these events are represented in the media and the newspapers and police reports, etc. Yeah, I mean, I think that this idea of archive and historicity is is very important um, because it has to do a lot with the kind of assembling of evidence and what constitutes evidence and how people are interpreting evidence at any given moment. And I think that the image that are circulating 
about black violence in particular have to do a lot with the kind of scrutinizing of what is possible at any given moment. So if you kind of think about Freddie Gray's limp body or Michael Brown's arms in the air, right? This is idea of uh, recrafting the narrative of what could have been possible, right? How could someone injure themselves in a police van? How injured had he had to have been mm-hmm. um, for him to be dragged into the van in the kind of limp state that he was in, right? What happened before and after the video recording that is being retweeted again and again? And I think that part of the dialogue that's going around in those conversations is the kind of imagining what was possible, right? And and again, in contradistinction mm-hmm. to what is being reported or what is being um, the, the kind of legal archive that's being erected that will be used for a case against or the police officers or something like that, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, Lawrence, as someone who's written a lot about gangs and, and urban communities, what did you think about the way um, the events in Baltimore were represented and the role of gangs that were represented in, in relationship to the protests? The role of the gang in, in the Baltimore protest was very interesting to watch unfold for a number of reasons. I think that when the initial kind of reportage of riots in Baltimore started kind of unfolding and scenes uh, on uh, news outlets of uh, quote-unquote looters, right, going going in stores and, you know, uh, setting fire to them and, and raiding check-cashing stores or what have you and liquor stores, those news reports started uh, repeating on an endless loop at the same time that reports that a kind of gang truce had emerged in Baltimore such that gangs that were supposed to be rivals like the Bloods and the Crips, the Black Gorilla family in Baltimore were supposedly uniting to attack the police, right? So then people were were kind of that that news was going viral at the same time that Baltimore was going ablaze, right? And so there was this uh way in which the what was could have been regarded as protest was being criminalized right as riots and people who could have been um justified in their anger were being demonized as looters right and the the idea of the gang was critical in that in that moment to help criminalize what otherwise could have been looked at as a protest right or a protest that have gone awry or a protest had, that had gone from peaceful and that was verging on to to something more disruptive right so that was a way of kind of saying that the people who were out on the streets thus didn't have any rationale for being on the streets other than their own kind of uh, self-interested concerns and thus what they were purported to be fighting for or uh, protesting against was less valid right and I think the idea of the gang was crucial in, in, in that kind of diminishment, right? Uh, on the other hand, the next morning, after the night of really disruptive protests, all these kind of counter-narratives about this idea of the gang truce had emerged, right? So on the one hand, you had images of uh, supposedly rival gang members in Baltimore united peacefully and protesting peacefully. And then you have 
gang members themselves coming out and say saying that they didn't want to be demonized and it was important for them to speak out against this idea that they were contributing to the violence when from their perspective they were trying to stop the violence. And then that became another way of, of looking at the gang as a kind of a neutralizing force or, or a kind of protective force within the community. It really goes to this point of, um, I think, how social media is in dialogue with the kind of civil rights movement mm -hmm. or social media as post-civil rights in, this, in the way that it conceives of movements in particular, uh, particularly when you think about this, this idea of a poster child, the mm -hmm. idea of the kind of example that's beyond reproach um, versus a kind of a bombardment of victims of police violence. So one can't just say Trayvon Martin or Michael Brown or Freddie Gray, but one has to look at all of those images together and to say that there is no one kind of perfect example of the way police violence is enacted, but there's all these kind of ways in which it perpetually happens, and, and that's part of the argument, too. You, you can also see the kind of demonization taking place on all, on all of those figures, right? So the kind of counter-argument to Trayvon Martin or Michael Brown or Freddie Gray is that what, who were their real selves before the violence took place, right? And that's a way to justify the violence that was enacted upon them, right? And so that happens on another scale when you talk about something like the gang, right? To the, the people who feel sympathy for them. So who are the people that would feel sympathy for a criminal? They must be criminals themselves. And so that's the way of mm -hmm. uh, criminalizing the movement or the protest on a more general plane or general scheme. Mm -hmm. Well, and also a way of disenfranchising folks. I, I think there, there was a suggestion that if you're involved in a gang, like you can't have a politics. You can't protest. Anything you, you engage in is not is not political because you're you're kind of seen as, a, as an outlaw of sorts that can't engage in in a in a, in a process of contesting the social order. Yeah. I think that that was to me that was what was most striking. That in order to become political subjects, they had to set aside their gang affiliations or their gang you know engagements in right. order it's to be able to. Yeah. to why couldn't they participate and be both, right? Right, right. You're listening to Anthropological Takes on the Black Lives Matter movement on Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. Something that also troubled me about the representations, I mean, there's always the, the issue of violence with protests that are described as riots, and then people feel the need to defend rioting. On Twitter, there was a lot of, of people reproducing that quote, that famous quote from MLK about uh, riots as the voice of the unheard. But there was also a big pushback against, against the use of that quote. And I think that quote is actually very problematic because it suggests that only the unheard engage in acts of violence and only the unheard engage in, in protests that are deemed violent. And in fact, there, were, there have been a lot of social movements that engage in uh, destruction of private property. There was definitely, that was definitely seen a lot in Seattle and in the anti-globalization movements. But in those moments, that, that violence is not described as the voice of the unheard. It's, it's seen as a kind of performative violence that is part of the social movement itself. And I think, 
you know, to, to imagine the riots as violent because of, of the burning of, of a CVS or the, you know, the looting of, of a store, I think that that does disservice to the power of, of those protests, which is beyond that kind of small destruction of private property. I think what was most powerful about both Ferguson and Baltimore was the suspension of social life, the creation, of the, the occupation of a space, that, that liminal moment where people were not engaged in their daily lives, where their daily lives were disrupted and attention was called to these issues, issues that are normally not engaged with. And, and the people who call for nonviolent protests, what they're really calling for is protests that they can ignore, um, right. protests that, that won't impact their daily life, that won't disrupt their daily life. And I think that that is what, has, to, to me, has been most powerful about both Ferguson and Baltimore has been the refusal to carry on as if nothing had happened, right? So the, the refusal to accept um, the police silence around what had happened to Michael Brown, the refusal to, of the police to um, explain themselves what had happened in, in these moments, what led to a, a severed spine, etc. So I think we need to think about these issues and not reproduce the idea of protest as violent only in relation to certain communities, but how are the ways in which social protest is always a violent suspension of norms and of, of the quotidian life? Right, and I think, I think and to your point, I think there's something about forcing the state to show their hand in, the, in that respect, forcing the National Guard to be called and deployed, right, and forcing a confrontation such that one can't ignore the routinization of policing or the militarization of policing, but one has to kind of see the spectacle of that at work, right? And so mm -hmm. this is not, mm -hmm. you know, for the communities that live there, they experience that on an everyday mm -hmm. basis, not to that extent, but they are confronted with police violence and state-sanctioned uh, force, I should say, on an everyday basis. And so kind of putting uh, a national, international eye on what that looks like, right? Forcing that to come out of uh, the shadow, so to speak, or out of the kind of surveillance cameras or police cameras that monitor the urban landscape from on high and forcing tanks to roll down the middle of a street and suspending baseball games and forcing a national dialogue of what that means and why it takes shape like that at this historical moment is important. Yeah, I was struck in, in uh, during both Ferguson and Baltimore. A lot of people would tweet, "I can't believe this is America." I mean, this was this happened right. in both instances, and I think, and and people would say this uh, at times for the violation of civil rights, like a disappointment in in the kind of um, you know racial inequality that exists in the U.S. But they would also say it in relation to the militarization and the you know they're so used to. The, the military being deployed elsewhere, right? right. And, and in those moments, there's never a questioning. And in fact, in, in Ferguson, people said, oh, this looks like Iraq. You know, this is... Yeah. So I think it reveals the silence that exists around racial inequality in the U.S., the violence that is afflicted daily among communities of color in the U.S., but it also reveals the silence that exists around U.S. military force outside of its borders, right, and, and how we've naturalized that and have, and have accepted the U.S. as an occupying force in other places but are shocked when, when then those cannons are turned around onto the U.S. population in the mainland. And surprised by the fact of the, the techniques, the same logics, the 
literally the same material objects that are used other places are oftentimes developed in the U.S. and deployed elsewhere, not the reverse, right? And so there is a kind of, we can't necessarily think of a kind of urban space as a domestic counterpart to what goes on overseas. There's no counterpart. It, it's yeah. the same same processes, the exact same processes going on, the same logics of surveillance. And, and that really comes to fruition through incidents like what happened in Baltimore and Ferguson. Yeah, yeah. And I think for for myself as someone coming from Puerto Rico who has long thought about the U.S. in relationship to colonialism and imperialism, so th those are not shocking moments, but they do they do reveal the silence that exists about around the U.S. as a colonizing force, as a settler colony itself that has long used violence to put down populations that have contested the legality of, of the U.S. itself. So I think it, it's telling um, both what people choose to document and archive in this moment as important historical facts and also what people reveal as surprising to them in these right. moments no, as well. Right, that's a great point. You're listening to Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. For more on the SCA, visit cullanth.org. You know, this conversation, I think, gets framed a lot around policing. And I actually wonder to what extent that's the most appropriate frame, because I feel like it's more about race-based violence would be a, a better term for me. Um, because I feel like reducing it to policing assumes that you can fix a particular institution that's not connected to a larger system. So I, I don't yeah. think that that it's really about police gone awry. Right, right yeah. But um, I don't think it's, it's, even though we do have to talk about the role of the police in the United States and how it was created to uh, surveil populations of color and to m enforce a, a, a wage labor system at the end of slavery, I mean, that is, those are the origins of the police force. Yeah. Um, but yes, this, this, this whole institution of policing has a long history that is important, but it's only one prong within a larger system of racial inequality, systemic inequality, structural violence that of which they're just one arm. In my in my view, I don't know. What do you think, Lawrence? There's a way in which this idea of police violence creates an exceptional category, either to the institution of the police, which can't be mm -hmm. um, disconnected from other societal institutions, or more often a kind of exceptionality around particular police departments, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. those Ferguson police, right, are, are really messed up, right? We can see by the mm -hmm. DOJ report, oh, there must be a problem with the Baltimore PD. Let's investigate mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Whereas that creates a kind of exceptional paradigm in which either the kind of logical extension of that is that, oh, if we, f you know, fix the Ferguson Police Department, we get a new police captain, then things will be okay. Or if we fix the Baltimore Police Department um, by giving them training, then something will be, okay, you know, it will be all right, whereas that misses the point at so many levels, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And again, I think it goes back to this question of archiving and evidence. And so I think part of the claims that are being made via Twitter being this kind of collection uploading of images and instances of police violence that are taking place throughout the nation and throughout the globe is to really take seriously this question of 
what are the the forms of connectedness, right, that allows violence to be enacted in this particular way on multiple populations in different places, uh, but in the same way or in similar ways, right? And so I think the analytic has to come from that um, kind of collaborative kind of archiving rather than uh, to kind of the isolating the exception and, and, mm -hmm. and finding mm -hmm. out, like, how do we deal with this particular problem of police violence, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I do think that there is something worthwhile about thinking about the particularities of the U.S. police system and why it is these seemingly disconnected units. So the NYPD, the Baltimore PD, the Ferguson PD, rather than a national police. And a lot of that has to do with, again, the consolidation of the U.S., the kind of outsourcing of certain elements to the state level and the refusal at, of the national level to enact policy that would cover the U.S. as a whole. So if you look at the U.S.'s racial history, the ability of states to retain their sovereignty in certain aspects has long been related to racial histories and to, 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 to allow certain states to enact policies that are, inflict disproportionate violence, economic, social, physical, on communities of color, while the at the national level, you know, sometimes there's no protection to, to limit and curtail that state sovereignty. You know, you have to re rely on the police department themselves to collect mm -hmm. data on how often they enact extra-legal force when there's no consensus around what even constitutes extra-legal force and there's no accountability for figuring out how often it takes place, right? So mm -hmm. then it gets mm -hmm. dismissed as, oh, we'll investigate after the fact rather than having a kind of national system or national database even um, that would gather such statistics or hold police departments accountable in some kind of systematic way mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. violence or even take for granted that a violence will take place such that we have to hold police to a higher standard, right, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the normal citizens, right? And all these are ways that you could imagine it working, but it doesn't. Yeah, and the the kind of national legislation and, and protections that we do have, we have to recognize that many of them come straight out of the civil rights struggles, so things like Miranda rights, etc. These were in action, you know, these were policy that were created after communities of color protested and brought to national attention the discriminations they were facing in their districts, in their cities, in their towns, in their states. So these nested sovereignties have been used in many ways against communities of color to not give them equal rights across the nation. And so it's no, it's no coincidence that this kind of spins out into what we're seeing today. Right. So, but you know, I don't. So, I do think that that we have to think beyond policing, but we we have to historicize policing in the U.S. and understand it, the context in which it developed, and and then we can have a conversation about how police systems have uh, emerged in similar or different ways in different parts of of the world, leading to different or similar effects. I think. Right, but also why it then makes sense to. Um, collect data in the way that people are doing, yeah. you know, and why social media is so attractive for doing that, right? Because then you can make commensurate different experiences of violence, and then you can say that this is not just the Baltimore problem or a St. Louis problem or a Stanford, Florida problem, but this is happening throughout the nation or something like that, right? 
And to to document the, that which is erased from the police books, that's what it is erased right. from the institutional archives. They they refuse to recognize or document, count even the loss of lives, not just the loss of life, but also the daily interactions, the daily brutality that they inflict. You're listening to anthropological takes on the Black Lives Matter movement on Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. I mean, I think this notion of evidence is is key, and also this notion of credible evidence is key. I mean, it's amazing how the same kind of, the same exact video, actually, right, can elicit multiple interpretations, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. what people are seeing and not seeing in it, and how it can ro- rally a protest, but also rally justifications for police violence. Yeah. And I think that, on the one hand, the image that, the images that circulate about protests, um, for example, I think that feeds a kind of anxiety on behalf of the police that communities of color are against them, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in a way, it kind of feeds a paranoia, right, mm-hmm. that allows them or justifies a kind of us-against-them mentality, which then gives them license in many ways to enact, anticipate violence, right, anticipate threat. Right, so it's a part of a larger constellation of blackness as threatening, in which they conceive of policing as a kind of counter to that that mm-hmm. threat. Right, and so the black body that's running from them can be violent even as it's fleeing. Right, and so that justifies the shooting. Right, so there's that kind of that wide scale anxiety or paranoia yeah. around what blackness creates. Yeah. Right? That makes me think of those studies where they've told people that there's disproportionate amount of incarceration and of, you know, detention of, of people of color. And rather than it making people think that people of color are unfair targets of police, they they reinforce the idea that people of color are disproportionately criminal elements, right? right? right. Um, so the same kind of evidence can generate a different conclusion in, in the person right. given their pre-existing bias which is such that is such a troubling study because then yeah. how, how how do we get this message out in a way that doesn't reinforce pre-existing ideas but that's one reason why we have to take seriously Twitter right or social media right because you can see the unfolding of interpretations right in real time right you can see people saying that, no, this news report is not right. Look at the way they're characterizing this, right, and developing a kind of communal evaluation Mm -hmm. of the way the same images are being represented, right? And so you can kind of see that through something like social media, a kind of dialogue between that. Or, you know, I've been struck by how many times, like, I'm actually watching the news on TV or CNN or something like that, and being shocked by what they're saying in the sense of a kind of just a, a total disregard for the scholarship that's been done and, or just the kind of just simplistic rendering of what's going on. And I look on Twitter at the same time and people are having the same reactions, right? They're having the mm-hmm. same outrage to, to what's going on and they're creating a kind of dialogue about that, right? So on the one hand, it's a kind of product of who I choose to follow on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, so it's not objective in that sense, but on the other hand, there is a, a nuanced analysis that is going mm-hmm. on at that time, right, that mm-hmm. one has to take seriously 
about the ways that different people engage with the same representations or, or the multiple renderings of what a representation can mean. And it goes to this point about how the same image can it, it kind of create an inverted paranoia, you know, on behalf of the person, you know, enacting violence, right, that then justifies that act of violence. And we have to kind of take that process seriously, like what's what's actually going on there, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's so interesting what you were saying about um, how the media is not engaging with scholarly analysis, right? And there was that Wolf Blitzer interview that went viral where he, where he was interviewing one of the activists and asking him, putting words in his mouth, saying to him, okay, I want to hear you say that this and this, right? I condemn the violence of the protest. So the media is really shaping a particular, trying, trying to, to shape a particular view, not bringing on the kind of intellectuals we would like to see, having talking heads, etc. But I have noticed that on Twitter, people are circulating a lot of articles. So they're in the, there's a lot of critique of, of Twitter being banal or fluff or and, and short and not the space of sustained engagement. But, for example, the Ferguson newsletter that was created during the events in Ferguson, part of what they sent out were a lot of links to articles because I do think that people are thirsty to read and to, to have some analysis because they're not getting that from the media. So I do think that, that Twitter can be the space to, to share these things in a decentralized way for, for folks who want to find them. They can find them quickly through ha use of hashtags and all these kinds of things. And, and the turn to Twitter for these things suggests the, the absence of those conversations in the mainstream media. And I think, you know, something we were talking about earlier, like this idea that Twitter, for example, is just people are commenting on anything, the trivial matters from sports games to TV shows, right? Celebrity, to, to celebrity. Yeah. But but one can't divorce those kind of popular encounters to then what goes on in Ferguson, for example, or Baltimore, for example, because I think that the community is created in that way, right? In a kind of way that then people see something and react to it and comment on it, right? And so that doesn't stop when you see police violence, but it doesn't start there either, right? Mm -hmm. And so this idea that the use of those kind of popular renderings of Twitter to then dismiss uh, the potential for activism mm -hmm. is akin to the way that people criminalize protest or something like that. People mm -hmm. try to trivialize protest mm -hmm. or people mm -hmm. try to trivialize uh, the potential for protest through Twitter or something like that by pointing towards these laughable incidents as well. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we fully have theorized Twitter really as a space, as a commons. In the article that I wrote with Jonathan Rosa, I pulled on this idea from Teju Cole about the time of the game and how people had a kind of shared temporality when they were watching a, a sporting event. And, and this is something that people tweet about a lot, sporting events, live television shows, the Oscars, scandal, these kinds of things that might seem banal, but there is a kind of public time, a kind of simultaneity and a community that is created by people who are living something in real time. And I think th this can be 
used to talk about the dresses people are wearing on the red carpet, but it can also be used to talk about violent images shown on CNN or a, a misrepresentation and miscategorization of events. And, and this was definitely the case in Ferguson where all these live streams were coming through on Twitter too. So it was creating this kind of real-time portal into a world that people wanted to access. People wanted to find out more about that. You know, part of what's happening when when people are linking, so so there was a hashtag like Emmett Still or something mm. like that, right? Or LA Riots is the obvious kind of comparison to the events that are taking place now. Is a kind of having this particular event stand in for all the events that you don't see or you don't have evidence of, but you know that's happening, right? And I think there's a historical legacy of doing that and having like Emmett Till's open casket be a symbol for all of the events and lynchings that you don't see, right? Or having the kind of video recording of Rodney King being beaten um, to show that this stands in for so much more, right? And and I think that that's a kind of historical argument about black bodily injury that's taking place. You know, it's different in the ways that we've discussed in the sense that these are really a proliferation of images and so so that it can't be just one I think I think right now part of the way people are making that argument is by uploading more and more images, right? To say that, you know, this can't be, you know, the only one because look, it happened mm-hmm. again and it happened again and it's happening again, right? Uh in real time, right? And so uh, there's not a, a kind of same temporality uh, in, in the way that other kind of movements were conceived before. So I think that that's one way. But I also think that what's similar historically is the way that th- how communities can jail through death, right? And so you can see uh, 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 affirmation of life through death, right? Black Lives Matter is obviously, the, you know, um, the most salient or one of the most salient examples of that uh, affirmation but all the work that goes around that you know all the protests that are mobilized around that those uh, particular deaths and the coordination now in different cities right uh, of what that means and so you see the kind of uh, the work of life uh, the force of life right um, out of uh, these instances of death or these instances of injury which I think is important, right? I've been really struck by the rhetoric around life. Uh, Black Lives Matter, I saw a a poster, a a, a protest sign that said, is life also uh, in the domain of white privilege, right? but, But I've been in general really struck by the idea that what is the battleground is now life at life and death, right? Versus the civil rights moment where it was about inclusion, about civic, civil rights, about uh, political life. I, I think the, the reduction of, of the movement to biological life is depressing <laughs> in lots yeah. of ways, and, uh, but speaks also to a recognition of the failures of that political inclusion. So a previous moment um, that sought political inclusion with with the idea that that would be a a solution to the problem, that having voting rights, that having um, equal opportunities to to access certain, at least in in writing at least, 
formally le uh, equal opportunities would guarantee uh, a kind of a, a leveling, a, a social leveling in the United States, I think there's no longer a belief in that. And so the, in some ways it's a reduction of, of, of the social terrain, but, but also uh, bringing into question that those politics. And, and I think that's not disconnected from uh, a larger conversation about respectability politics, right. etc., that has emerged around this, the, these protests. And so in a previous moment, you had much more carefully selected uh, icons. So like Rosa Parks, like she wasn't the first person to stand up in the bus, right? She was chosen to become this icon because she had the kind of character that could hold up. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's interesting that in the contemporary uh, events, you see folks like Michael Brown, who would not have been carefully chosen, um, and who are hashtag no angel, right? And, and I yeah. think, but, but I, I see among contemporary activists an insistence on these, on, on these folks being equal uh, political actors, right? right? And, right. And, and they're kind of rejecting the idea that there is a, a perfect poster child, because they know that a perfect poster child will not guarantee you anything, right? And so I think their refusal of respectability politics, their refusal of the perfect uh, kind of iconic symbols, iconic leaders, speaks, it, it speaks to the reduction of the terrain, but it also speaks to a questioning of these previous um, goals in a way that that I think uh, clears up, um, you know, creates a political opening for a new kind of politics. One would hope to be to be optimistic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I think it's also a critique of um, civil rights era styles of leadership, right? Because when you talk about political inclusion in that particular way, you talk about okay, who are the representatives that one would vote to speak on behalf of, right? I think it's a rejection of this idea that one needs uh, particular representatives to speak on behalf of them, right? Yeah. So, and in that right. sense, it's no coincidence that it's at the moment when a black man is president, when when the, the the promise of civic inclusion has gone all the way to the top. Okay, so not only can we can black people vote, they can now run the country. And clearly, that is not going to change the situation. That in this moment, there is a clear reversal of that and a rejection of that kind of politics. Right, right. It's, it's like the moment of its its culmination and, and disappointment all in one. Right, right. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's like a widening of the terrain just to to say that, you know, because implicitly, what mm -hmm. one is saying when one picks the angel as the um, representative of um, injustice, right? That, mm -hmm. you know, is not, you're, you're not saying that black lives matter and, and you're not necessarily saying that black lives matter. You're saying a particular kind mm -hmm. of respectable black life that shouldn't have been extinguished matters, right? But, but here, this is a different claim is that even if you take someone who is supposedly a criminal, that doesn't give them the right to be gunned down in the street, right? So it's a widening of that terrain um, and a, a rejection of a particular kind of politics at the same time, a politics of respectability and a politics of incorporation, I would say. Yeah, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah of, of, of 
of inclusion. So, yeah. so a kind of giving up on inclusion means we need an entirely new political project, not just to be included into a previous one. Right. And it could come with a questioning of what the kind of stuff that we were talking about, about US, the U.S.'s history as a settler colony, as an imperial force in the U.S. All of that could be brought into question in this moment. Of, of inclusion into what? What is this project that that I've not been included in? Do I want to be included in it, or do I want to reject this project? Right. So it could be. It, it it's always depends on how you see it. For some, this might be a very uh, a moment of of political disenchantment. Seen it could be seen that way, or it could be seen as a moment of political recreation. Right. Jaramar Bonilla and Lawrence Ralph just spoke to some of the critical contemporary context necessary to understanding the Black Lives Matter protests. But I also wanted to understand some of the deeper historical roots of the current movement against police violence. So I talked to Mark Aslander, Assistant Professor of Anthropology and Museum Director at Central Washington University, about some of the historical resonances of the current wave of protest. Mark, could you tell me more about how you arrived at your AAA paper? I found myself working in African-American communities in the Deep South, uh, many of which were pretty heavily policed, where you have a very long history of antebellum slave patrols that then morph into post-Civil War uh, quasi-military formations tied in very closely with, with the Klan and other modes of control in agrarian areas the slavery-by-another-name uh, system of convict labor throughout places that sort of starts in places like Green County, Georgia, and spreads very rapidly uh, through the Deep South, um, and then intersects with uh, a whole other set of racialized policing practices and the increasing you know, post-war militarization that we've seen of American, uh, both urban and uh, rural policing. Uh, so all of those things uh, have been interesting to me, uh, I also work a lot on ritual and performance. So for that AAA paper, I became fascinated with this question uh, around the most we recent set of protests, uh, you know, holding up one's hands and saying, we can't breathe, uh, or I can't breathe, uh, the die-ins and so forth, and thinking how fascinating that is, that the very long history of African-American embodiment of positions of subjection for precisely to dramatize a crisis and then undo that. Some of that history I got into through looking over the last 10 years at a major annual reenactment of lynching which takes place in Georgia at the site of a 1946 uh, lynching uh, in Georgia where four young African Americans were killed, a very famous lynching, the Morris Ford lynching. Ever since 2005, a multiracial group primarily led by work, local working-class African-Americans, has gotten together to reenact the lynching, putting their own bodies on the line, and, uh, and doing this kind of complex die-in uh, where they go through every sort of compressed 11 days of the Klan, sort of tracking this particular guy and then killing him 
and his common-law wife and his best friend and his common-law wife uh, in a very, very uh, bloody, gruesome scene by the edge of the Appalachian River. And I was initially shocked. Why would uh, people who I considered my close friends feel that the other forms of memorial action that we had done you know, reading poetry and singing hymns and holding hands and all those things were so insufficient. But many people told us that it was absolutely necessary, first of all, to call attention to this long legacy of pain and violence, uh, but uh, at the same time to enter into a kind of almost spiritual proximity with those of our people who had suffered terribly and to begin to just figure out, first of all, what happened, how it was that so many terrible violent acts could have happened to people of color at the hands of the white power structure and what they were going to do about it. So uh, that really took me back historically uh, to looking at the history of reenacted slave auctions in the United States, um, some of which were performed by abolitionists in the mid-19th century before the Civil War, then seemed to have emerged again at the very end of the Civil War during Jubilee emancipation protests, very complicated ways in which the famous silent march down Fifth Avenue in New York, in which people embodied precisely the conditions of being silent, but transmuted those into a, an experience of strength. So there's a very interesting genealogy of performance that we see going on over the last year, uh, from Ferguson to New York to, to Baltimore and so forth. Not all of which gets, of course, picked up, but which is, is, is out there. In other words, there's a deep set of cultural repertoire, repertoires that are being um, experimentally played with by African-American, Latino, and other, and other protesters. Well, one of the things I was fascinated by was the meme that has faded a little bit, but which we saw dramatically a few months ago of hands up, don't shoot. Uh, sometimes you got that in call response form, as if uh, the people would be putting their hands up, the leader might might call out through the megaphone saying hands up, and sometimes this would happen, of course, as people were directly at night facing the police, and then the crowd would shout out, don't shoot, so hands up, don't shoot. It was a little confusing because was the leader taking on the voice of the armed police officer who was about to fire, or, or was it sort of the voice of the victim explaining he's in a position of surrender, or, or is it sort of both, this sort of intersection of perpetrator and victim? And of course, with Eric Erner's death, especially after the refusal of the grand jury to indict uh, the police officer who placed him in the fatal chokehold, protesters would chant, I can't breathe. And then often it, it morphs into, uh, as the protesters are going back and forth, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. The leader might say, we can't breathe, we can't breathe. So very metaphorically rich, obviously. Uh, but again, t uh, moving into that position of being in a state of terrible subjection, uh, but in so doing that, dramatizing a position of a strength. We were able to do this uh, collectively. It was interesting, in New York, the Daily News even had a headline, the first person plural, announcing the lack of an indictment was, we can't breathe. We've seen similar kinds of identification, of course, with victims for a very long time. I mean, it's a basic, the basic symbolic po politics of martyrdom everywhere, but very dramatic, of course, with the Trayvon Mart Martin protests, in which multiple protesters were wearing a hoodie, which was uh, comparable to the clothing worn, uh, you know, the night that Trayvon Martin uh, walked to his death. We also see a lot of interesting struggles over right-of-way in so much of the urban protests, people reclaiming certain kinds of spaces that they have been steered off of, especially given 
the whole curious way that so much of American space, most dramatically in the suburbs, but to some extent in gentrified cities too, is now really, people are just by virtue of it breathing and existing, it reminds me of South Africa a lot, are rendered illegal, right? So a number of urban geographers have noted that there really was no way for Trayvon that particular night to get home, get over to his dad's place after having bought the Skittles, without violating one ordinance or another because the whole practice of right of way has been so undercut by the design of suburbs in Florida and elsewhere, right? Either you walk on the middle of the street because there's no sidewalk and you get pulled over uh, by private or, or city cops uh, for being in the middle of the street, or you're cutting across somebody's property and then you're either arrested or followed by a vigilante for trespassing and so forth. So in that context, we see a lot of, of sort of spatialized performances. People are taking hold of the very streets, the parks, the spaces that have been denied to them. But in the AAA paper, I sort of played around with this problem of embodying uh, subjection and asking what, what were the historical antecedents for that practice of dramatizing a condition of being oppressed in a very bodily way uh, and then using often humor and other kinds of performance repertoires to move beyond that particular crisis of subjection or abjection the visceral miming of violent death becomes a way of reclaiming or reasserting space within a larger polity. And I, I touched on things uh, such as the very interesting mid-19th century and immediately post-Civil War active performances by African Americans of slave auctions seeming hor I mean, unquestionably horrific moments of terror, which were leavened with the current of Alaska and with humor uh, to sort of dramatize and get some degree of control, as art and performance allow one to do, over that overwhelming horrific scenario. Uh, uh, similarly with the silent parade of 1917 in New York, going through some of the uh, more recent mimetic reenactments of racial terror, whether or not it's reenacted lynchings as we've seen or reenacted slave auctions and so forth. Again and again, there's a kind of homeopathic quality dramatizing precisely the malady of collecting, silencing collective violence or individuated violence sometimes and then replacing that scenario of individual loss, suffering, uh, dismemberment through collective silencing. So it's very much consistent with a lot of work looking at different kinds of African ritual practices through which the body is dismembered precisely so that the social body can be remembered. You're listening to Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. For more on the SCA, visit CullAnthropod. Org. I guess we've all been thinking about the poetics, the profoundly moving poetics of the phrase Black Lives Matter or Black and Brown Lives Matter, which can be understood in so many different ways, and, it, and I think that's the richness of it, when, especially when Black Lives Matter is, is, is written in many different forms and carried or shouted by 10, 100, 200 voices at night, sometimes placing, uh, facing heavily armed, uh, heavily armed police. It becomes not just a plea, it becomes a, in a profound way, a kind of a performative utterance calling into existence a very uh, almost mythic state of affairs that is longed for, and it, be it starts to become true. And yet it seems to me we are seeing in many different contexts here moments of collective reaffirmation that are still very experimental at this time because it's, you know, it's very hard for progressives to know how to really take on this culture of violent policing. 
But we are seeing at least moments of a kind of moral economy emerging, which people really are trying to exchange with the dead, or almost interpolating themselves into the land of the dead, either through costume or performance, and then returning to this world. So uh, that really struck me in, in 2008 when uh, Richard uh, was one of the reenactors at that Morris Ford lynching that I reenacted, lynching that I've been studying. And he was down in the mud. He had been brutally acted being terribly beaten by the white uh, men and women who were playing the Klansmen, and he was down in the mud for some minutes being photographed. It was very, very disturbing each time I see this. And yet then he stood up, and he came out of the mud, and he, he'd been laying down in that muddy grass for many minutes without motion, but as he stood up, he said with wonder in his voice, we come back to life, we come back to life. And it was so interesting. Everybody had sort of died alone in that lynching reenactment, but he didn't say, I come back to life. He said, we come back to life. So there was an almost unbearably painful sense of individual alienation and terror to being, you know, of course, to being on the receiving end of racial hatred. But by taking on that role of ultimate privation, of individuated terror, paradoxically, he was able to attain a sense of what we could say, you know, shared return, collective restoration, uh, restored common purpose. And I think that's why we start to see these phrases, hands up, don't shoot, I can't breathe, black lives matter, because Black Lives Matter right itself calls up the very possibility that black lives aren't mattering. So you have to sort of go into that valley of darkness, but then come out the other other side. So these are not, none of these are in any sense pleas of simply of, there's not simply statements of vulnerability. They're not simply signs of surrender. It's almost as if, hands up, don't shoot. It's almost as if we're, we're trying to stop that imagined speeding bullet in mid-flight acknowledging the power of death, but entering into Hades or the other world so as to come out the other the other side. I don't think this is a fully realized ideology by any means. I feel there's a lot of experimental practice going on. It's exciting to watch. It often doesn't get adequately conveyed, of course, in the mainstream uh, newscasts or, or press media coverage, but it is clearly happening out there. And that's what I think gives one some hope at this grim moment. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Anthropod. We'd like to say a special thank you to Jerry Marbonia, Lawrence Ralph, and Mark Oslander for taking the time to talk with us about their research. For more information on each of these authors' books, articles, and social media profiles, including information about Jerry Marbonia's just-published ethnography, Non-Sovereign Futures, French-Caribbean Politics in the Wake of Disenchantment, head to collance.org. While you're there, you can also check out a recent collection of short essays from anthropologists in our Hotspot series, Black Lives Matter, Anti-Black Racism, Police Violence, and Resistance. And if you're listening to this on your way to the annual meeting of the American Anthropological Association in Denver, be sure to check out our sponsored panels and speakers, including our annual Cultural Large panel featuring Elaine Scarry. And as always, if you'd like to be the first person to know about new podcast episodes, and all of the other great content that gets published on Kalanth.org, then follow us on Twitter, where we are at Kalanth, and like us on Facebook at Cultural Anthropology. Thanks for listening. 
We'll see you next time for another exciting look into the world of anthropology.